Well, good morning. Uh, my name's Stuart as well, in case you haven't met me before. And I'm going to be speaking this morning on Palm Sunday. I'm one of those, Stuart, who didn't notice the palms as I came in. <laughs> I've been in churches before, old churches, where the, with the pews. They had palm leaves on every pew, and as you walk down, you sort of got them in your face. Um, so this is a very sort of laid-back effort. <laughs> But it is Palm Sunday, and that's what we want to talk about. Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey on the week before his death. But I want to look at that event this morning in the light of some other events that surround this one. So this will be our centrepiece, but we want to also have a look to get the fuller and bigger meaning. So why don't we pray as we look at uh, people who encounter uh, Jesus along the way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thanks for today. Thank you that you've brought us here this morning to come and worship you. Help us now to settle our minds and hearts and listen and understand what you say to us. Amen. Uh, are you a spontaneous sort of person? Do you make decisions hastily or do you calculate and sort of uh, weigh up things before you do anything? Do you ever let your hair down? You're the sort of person who, if there's karaoke on, you're at the mic before anyone else. Um, you do things despite what others might think. I always think of spontaneity when I think of the, the School of Rock. Remember that movie? And the headmistress in that, who was very prim and proper. And suddenly, I think after, probably after a few drinks, begins to let her hair down. Well, this is where our episode starts this morning with someone letting their hair down. And what an amazing story it is. Let me just refresh your memories. If you've got your Bibles there, we're going to follow the Bibles fairly carefully. So we're in John chapter 12, and we're going to be looking at the first three verses to start off with. Six days before the Passover, about a week before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honour. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. It's an amazing story, isn't it? And it's a reaction to what has happened in chapter 11. In chapter 11, Lazarus, one of Jesus' friends, along with his sisters, Martha and Mary, uh, had become very sick. So sick that he'd actually died. Now, Jesus was called by the sisters to come and heal Lazarus because they knew he had that kind of power, but Jesus actually waited till he heard that Jesus, that Lazarus was dead, and then he came, and we have that episode where he comes to the tomb and he calls Lazarus out, that great moment where Lazarus comes out with the grave clothes still wrapped around him. Jesus says, untie him and let him go. It's a great miracle in the Bible. And uh, now we're having a post-resurrection party probably the first and the last, apart from Jesus himself. And Lazarus is there at the party. And uh, Mary and Martha are there running around serving, particularly Martha. That's her thing. That's what she does. If you have a look at Luke's gospel, you notice that Mary is the one who serves there. And in fact, uh, she's serving in, and, and Martha's serving and Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet listening. And Martha says to Jesus, uh, can you tell my sister to do something? And uh, Jesus says, Martha, you're doing a good thing, but she's doing a better thing. Sitting and listening at the feet of Jesus is a better thing 
than serving, even though that's a good thing. This is the best that she can do. And here it's a similar situation. We're in the town of Bethany, a couple of kilometres outside of Jerusalem. Martha's doing her usual thing, but Mary is doing far more than sitting, isn't she? <laughs> here at this meal, in this celebration, she gets out some very expensive perfume. Uh, she wipes it on Jesus' feet with her hair. It's a spontaneous gesture. It's an act of pure love, and Jesus commends her for it. Why does she do it? Well, it's a response to what Jesus has done for her brother. He was dead, and now he's alive, and she wants to celebrate and let everyone know how much she loves Jesus and what he's done. To those watching, she'd broken all the rules. Uh, a Hebrew lady was not supposed to let her hair down in public. She did that. She wiped Jesus' feet with her hair. It'd be the equivalent of coming up here with a long dress up and hitching it up to your thighs. It's that sort of breaking of social barriers that Mary goes through. It was an immoral thing to do. But Mary's act of worship is lavish, sacrificial. It's unembarrassed and it's deeply personal, isn't it? The perfume could have been her inheritance. It could have been what mum and dad gave her for her marriage. Uh, but compared to her gratitude for her resurrected brother, uh, this perfume paled in, in, into insignificance. It didn't count. Now, if you have a look at verse 7, you'll see that Jesus seems to indicate that what she's doing is in fact some sort of a prophecy. She's actually anointing Jesus' body before he's dead. Now later on, remember when Jesus dies, the women will go to the tomb and they'd anoint the body of Jesus probably before the, um, the resurrection day. But uh, here it's like a prophecy. She's anointing Jesus' body. And it's a bit like giving the roses while someone's still alive rather than bringing them to the funeral. And Jesus foresees this. I remember reading about a Ugandan man some years ago who uh, had a dream. And in this dream... He dreamt that uh, he should get the manure out of his corral and spread it into his land where he had his crops. Now, he didn't know why, but because the dream was so real, he did it. And, of course, we know that it made the land very productive and uh, the seed was sowed and, and the crops flourished. And what was his response? He adopted ten children onto the five he already had, ten orphan children from the war. And when they said, why did you do that? His reply was, if Jesus loves me this much, I must love him too. And that's Mary's response, spontaneous and free. Well, contrast that as John does here with the response of Judas. Have a look at verses 4 to 6. One of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Uh, Judas' loyalty to Jesus is very calculated, isn't it? He fails to see the point of what Mary's doing. He just thinks it's a terrible waste. Far better to use this money for charity, although we know from John's comment that the charity was probably himself. But put aside John's comment for a minute and be in that room. 
And look at the disciples. What are they doing? Are they shaking their heads? No, probably not. I think they're nodding. I think they're probably agreeing with Jesus, saying, yeah, that's pretty wise. That's pretty prudent. That's pretty cautious. You know, you're in charge of the resources, uh, and, and you've got to look after the group, and still we've got a little bit of money left over to give to the poor. Again, put aside what John tells us about Judas's greed and look in the mirror. Can you see a little bit of Judas in yourself there? Is your discipleship calculated? Do you worry about what others might think if you really let your hair down? Mary's love is shameless. She works at Jesus with everything she's got, risking the wrath of a sister and the anger of those who are in the room with her. She risks the sneer of Judas, who seems to know the value or the price of everything, but the value of nothing. But she does it because Jesus has done that for her. Well, then there's the religious leaders as we move on to the next group. And let's have a look at verses 9 to 11. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well, for on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. Chief priests had a real dilemma. What do you do with evidence like Lazarus being alive? Well, you get rid of it. You sweep it under the carpet. You plan to kill the man who demonstrates the truth of Jesus' statement that he is the resurrection and the life. Can bring life to dead people. Notice in the story that Lazarus never says anything. He's just there. And yet he's living proof of Jesus' claim. What do you do with evidence? Just sweep it away? Just say, I'm not going to look at it, I just don't believe? Or are you going to do something about it? Remember the blind man in chapter 9? Jesus healed him and the man started to testify in the synagogue. And they shut him up. And now they want to put Lazarus back in the grave. They're openly hostile to God and anything God would say to them, they just don't want to have anything to do with it. Well, the scene shifts again, and to our focus point this morning, just to Jerusalem. Uh, it's a couple of days later, uh, from the quiet dinner party in Bethany, it's now a noisy parade. It's Passover time. It's a spring festival. Uh, it was at the heart of Jewish life. This was the, the parade when people remembered uh, the Exodus and that great salvation event when God brought the people out of Egypt into the promised land uh, by the sprinkling of the blood of the lamb on the door lintel. You remember that? Uh, sacrifice was part of that festival. Now, although it was the wrong season, the symbols of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem are also tied up with another festival, one that we don't read about in the Bible, one that's sort of in between uh, the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New, and that's the festival of Hanukkah. Now, Hanukkah was a festival that celebrated the defeat of pagan invaders by a guy called uh, jo uh, Jacob Ma Judas Maccabees in 164 BC. And Judas came in and he cleansed the temple and he got rid of the invaders and his followers entered the city waving palm branches as this new king and his family installed themselves in Jerusalem. 
And John, you see here, is quite subtle, isn't he? He's pointing out that Jesus comes in for two reasons. He enters as king, but he also comes in, not just to claim his throne, but now it's a final moment when he would set Israel free forever. He set the people free in the Exodus from slavery. Now he'd set them free from slavery to sin through Jesus the king who enters the city. The ride on the donkey makes the same point. It's not, a, it's not a white charge, it's not a horse, it's a king coming in on a donkey, totally unexpected. And the uh, references, the echoes from the prophets and the Psalms say the same thing. Jesus is the true king, come to set his people free. And that whole episode is framed in the continuing story of Lazarus. Jesus has set this man free from death. And now he comes to set people free from sin and death. And a large crowd come in and they join with him, don't they? As the, uh, the pilgrims come to the Passover, they're excited. And the crowd who'd been with them at Bethany for, the, for the, uh, the celebration with Lazarus, they're caught up in the moment and the crowds talk to each other and they talk about Jesus and they talk about Lazarus. And the religious leaders make a dismissive statement of it all. Have a look at verse 19. What do they say there? See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. They make the statement in contempt. But John wants us to hear something else. It echoes John 3.16, doesn't it? For God so loved the world. It brings to mind John 10 where Jesus talks about having sheep from other pastors, not just the lost sheep of Israel. See, his death will enable people of every nation, every tribe, every, every culture to come in to this new kingdom that he's forming. And if on cue, some of those new people turn up. Have a look at verses 20 and 22. John chapter 12. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew, and Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. Foreigners, those from outside of Israel, the world comes to Jesus wanting to see who he is. Jesus' reaction? Well, we're not told that he actually talked to the Greeks. But what we do know is that Jesus said, as we read that in verse 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Remember we talked about this before? The hour is, hasn't come uh, back in John chapter 2 at the wedding. And then Jesus escapes the hour when uh, people are trying to kill him along the way and he uh, says, no, it's not my time and he was able to escape. But now the hour has arrived. The hour of preparation is over. And the hour when he will die for his people has come. But we read on in that section. Uh, Jesus says this, Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in the world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant will also be. My father will honour the one who serves me. 
Those outside the Jewish nation are asking to see Jesus. This is a catalyst to set in motion the timetable for Easter. And Jesus is not just talking about standing alone against uh, death and facing it by himself so that we don't have to. He's also, as we see here, pioneering a route for us to follow. The seed dies and then the seed grows and we too are going to be like seeds and, and die and rise and grow again. It will look like a tragedy, but it will end in triumph. A triumph of God's self-giving love to his people and to those in the world. A love that looks death itself in the face and defeats it. Not just for Israel's behalf, but on behalf of the whole world. In verse 32, we read these words. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth will draw all people to myself. When Jesus dies on the cross, there's a possibility for anyone to come to that saving faith in Jesus. There can be no glory without suffering, no fruitful life without death, no victory without surrender. And in these final words of Jesus, we've read in this passage, Jesus challenges us to surrender his life, our lives to him. You see the contrast there in this, in this passage in verses 23 and following? Uh, you can have loneliness or you can have fruitfulness. You can lose your life or you can keep it. You can serve yourself or, or you can serve Jesus. You can please yourself or you can receive honour from God. Well, let's go back for a minute to where we began with that joy-filled party in Bethany. And then the hushed silence as Mary begins to wash Jesus' feet. Mary exemplifies this kind of follower that Jesus talks about here. She gave her treasured possession, her costly perfume. She gave her best for Jesus, lost in wonder, love and praise in the moment as she worships Jesus. And Jesus doesn't stop her. He doesn't say, no, no, go away. He doesn't stop her. He lets her do it. She wipes his feet with her hair. And do you notice the statement back in verse 3? Sometimes we pass over this, but it's probably the key to the whole passage. And the house was filled with the fragrance of her perfume. Where was the perfume? It was in her hair. Now she moved around and she helped Martha serve, so she took the fragrance with her. She spread the aroma around the house. She was a blessing to those that she met. And in fact, she was a blessing and encouragement to Jesus as he faced these last moments before the cross. What brings you to church this morning? Are you here for a baptism? That's great. Are you here because it's the beginning of Easter and maybe you just want to do the Easter thing because you usually come at Christmas and Easter. Open your eyes to the evidence. Don't be like the religious leaders who shut it up and said, I don't want to look anymore. Keep on coming and look and see what evidence there is for who Jesus claims to be. Perhaps you're like the Greeks. You're openly seeking Jesus. Well, guess what? If you do that, Jesus will seek you. He'll find you. He'll bring you into his kingdom. Maybe you're happy to come on here and sing the songs and join in the celebration. But there's nothing personal about your relationship with Jesus. 
Or maybe you've got a relationship with Jesus that's calculated. You think, yeah, I like the idea of Jesus uh, being my saviour because I don't want to go to hell and I like the idea of going to heaven, but that's about as far as it goes. That's for clapping in church. Nah, I'm not going to do that. Or there's Mary. Sweet, smelling Mary. In a close personal encounter with Jesus. And Jesus says, that's the discipleship I'm looking for. Let your hair down. Why don't we pray? Heavenly Father, thank you this morning for the people we see who encountered Jesus. Help us to acknowledge them. And as we look at ourselves to see where we stand, we pray, Father, that we might enter more deeply into an intimate relationship with you, come to serve you and love you as you want us to. Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.